Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode number 15, recorded April 29th of 2021, and today I've got an exclusive preview for you of Witch of Wealth and Ruin, book two in the Tidecaller Chronicles, plus a little talk on daddy issues. Right, so without further ado, I give you chapter one of Witch and Wealth and Ruin. This does contain serious spoilers for the first book, so if you haven't read or listened to Daughter of Flood and Fury, maybe go and do that first. But if you have, enjoy this, and I'll be back at the end to talk more about our main character's daddy issues. One, salt water slaps the side of the mother's blessing. Sea wind sharp and heavy with an approaching storm. I lean from the railing, letting the gusts take hair that's grown to finger length, gazing at the port city of Teniere. I long to be with my shipmates, walking the city's winding streets and tasting its fiery foods. I remember talking about it with Gaxna, some sweltering serene night while we shared a clove leaf on the roof and gazed at the lights of Bomani across the strait. She was sure the markets would be easier to work, and kept going on about how many sticks of smoke tea she was going to steal. I just loved the idea of being alone together. I smile, remembering. Her calloused fingers had been twined with mine, and I felt a piece down in my bones, deeper than meditation had ever gone. I wondered then if I shouldn't just leave my father in the floods and everything behind and run away with her. It's a bitter thought now. I knowingly put her in danger instead, and now she's locked in the pits and I can't even leave the ship while we're at port because overseers are asking for me in every town along the Bomani coast. If they find me, everything I'm trying to do will get so much harder, if I even survive it. My knuckles go white on the rail. When I hired on four weeks ago, I'd been planning to gather allies and make a plan, then go back and get Gaxna free. All I've actually done is run from Narimes and his overseers. You were right, I murmur to the wind, imagining Gaxna there with me, leaning against the rail in her loose culottes. We should have just taken off. Her one eye scrunches into a smirk. Hey, you don't have to get cheeky about it. There's no answer, just me and my thoughts and the wind on the waves. I exhale, seeking the clarity that used to come so easily, that clear stream state of mind and body I trained for in the temple that might give me some perspective on what to do. It doesn't come. Instead, my mind churns like the harbor's silty water. I hate this. Hate not being in control of myself. But even more so, I hate that I don't have a plan, that Gaxna is locked up and the world's going to end and I'm too busy running to do anything about it. Spray flies as a wave slams into the anchored bow, and I jerk my hands back. My ancestors are in that water, living on in the embrace of the ocean, but facing them means facing my own failure. I've started avoiding the salt water and the brief flashes of connection it gives. It's still too painful. The water drops and I lean out again, searching for that inner calm. The city calls to me across the dark harbor, the dockhands and tea houses that could give me news on what's happening in Saray. As long as I'm stuck on board, I have no way to gather information other than what my shipmates tell me, and I have to be careful not to tip them off to who I am. The wind gusts and I roll my shoulders. Maybe I'm doing this all wrong. 
Maybe I should go into the town and attack whatever overseers I find and force the information out of them or die trying. Do something. But if I'm going to do that, I might as well sail back to Saray and fight Narimes head on, even though I know it would be suicide. It'd feel better than this. Another breaker rolls in, and I'm too caught in my thoughts to pull back in time. Ocean water slops over my hand, bringing a ghost image of Regiana and an echo of her voice. We can help. My heart seizes, not because of the reprimand in her tone or even the guilt that wells up at this wise woman dead because of me, but from the shock of connection. I grew up in the temple's waters, used to constant communion with the people around me, even if most of them hated me for who I was. After I left, I had Gaxna. Staying dry has felt so... lonely. The image fades with the water running off my fingers, but something of it sticks to me. We can help. I feel the waters churn anew in my belly, frustration and guilt and now loneliness, pushing against my resistance to entering the sea. My resistance to involving these people again, whom I already failed once. But between that and spending another month swabbing decks feeling frustrated and helpless... Maybe it's time to face my mistakes. I climb onto the deck's swaying rail, feeling no less desperate than the last time I leapt into an immersion unprepared, when Narimes was about to kill me. I jump. The storm wind rushes past me, replaced as I hit by the peace of the warm, silty water and the harbor's steady current. It draws me down, deeper, my water sight already sensing the presence of others here. You've been avoiding us. A voice comes from behind me. I turn to see Regiana, former head of the Therakens Guild, white hair floating around her in a pale cloud. Dead because of me. Don't be a fool, she snaps. I'm dead because that hookworm Miara fooled all of us and turned the girls against me. Besides, I knew the risks going in. Don't try to take that from me. I clear my throat, though it comes out very strange underwater. I know she's right, but knowing doesn't change how it feels. You said you could help me? A little clarity would help you, a second voice says, though Regiana's mouth moves in time to the words. Erte swims up from the other side, and my heart swells at the sight of his bluff, worn face, till I remember I got him killed too. I know, I say, sea salty on my tongue. I... it's been hard. Every seer will suffer if they keep themselves away after an immersion. The ocean is in your blood now, Alethea. You cannot keep it out. As you cannot keep us out, my father says, rising from the depths between Urte and Regiana, we are your ancestors, Alethea, blood and spirit, the voice of Ujay until you join us down here. It's only been four weeks since I saw him in the waters, and already he sounds less like my dad, the stern and distant man fading into something older and deeper like my mother has, the universal voice behind all of them, that makes it a little easier, even if I feel my second chance to know him, here in his afterlife, slipping away too. I won't keep you out, I say, and I mean it. Hard as it is to face them, this is also the most alive I've felt since I left Gaxon's side. I promise, and I'm still planning to do something about the flood, I just... You have your lover to save first, my mother mouths, though the voice comes from all around me. That is good. Duty alone cannot drive you enough to do what needs to be done. But that's the problem. I don't even know where to start. Even with your help, I look at Regiana and Erte, though there is a siltiness to them now. We couldn't do it. 
Now I can't even gather information without risking my life and our whole mission with it. Information is something we have, their voices say. More lives come to us every day, and they bring news of the world, of growing oppression in Saray by Nerimes and Miara. Some of those who join us have been killed to ensure their silence. And Gaxna? I ask. I know she's only one person, but I cannot keep the question from my lips. Some of those dead have seen her locked in the temple, the voices say. That is all we know. If she were dead, you would feel it in your blood. I nod, wanting to feel reassured, but feeling that old weight settling on my shoulders again. It's good to see them, but this is not information I can use. Not allies I can take with me when I storm into Saray to bring them all down. Or even a clue on where to start with stopping the coming flood. Start with the chronicles, they say, fading backward into the water. They hold all the keys you need to find the truth. Study them. Wait, I call. How do I get them? Who can help me? You must know something else. In desperation, I push my thoughts out at their retreating figures. My father struggles back, the features of his face drawing clearer, though it seems to cost him something. There is one memory I have, of my papers. I had a copy made near the end. My notes on the chronicles. They hold my thoughts, he grimaces. I cannot remember them now. Everything is growing hazy, but there is a woman. He breaks off, head turning toward the shore. I feel it too, a new mind in the water. All its thoughts are hidden behind a water blind, which can only mean one thing. Overseer. He must have been listening on the shore. Floods. I brace myself for a fight, but feel a push back from the ancestors. Remember our principles, they say, outlines just visible in the shifting green light. My father is among them again. He is not your enemy. You did well that last day in Saray to battle the hearts rather than the bodies of your foes. In this way will you make allies. Right. I also have a much better chance of winning if it doesn't come down to real blows. Brother, I think, pulling my blind down and pushing my thoughts into the water, I pray you do not come to me with ill intent. His blind is as solid as mine, but the lack of answer is answer enough. The shadow of his form appears above me, swimming along the surface. I kick deeper, hoping he won't see me. You were there the day Nerimes tried to kill me, I go on. The blade in his hand catches the sunlight as he pauses directly overhead. Or you heard of what happened there. My cause is just. Please. I restage memories of the evidence I found against Nerimes, not shying away from the conversations I had with the Therakens. The proofs I uncovered are damning, no matter what you think of the female order of Ujayism. He drops his blind just for a moment, long enough to say, I have my orders, please come peacefully. He dives down, blade clenched in his teeth. Your orders come from a usurper, I send back, swimming further down, my breath still held somehow in the immersion spell. My feet brush sand. I cannot honor them. Please, consider the recent deaths in the temple. The ancestors themselves have told me Nerimes is behind them. I restage the conversation I just had, focusing on the news they shared. Ujay let this convince him. I am half his size, and my concentration is shambles. He slows in his descent. That cannot be. I take it as a hopeful sign that he leaves his blind down. The thoughts behind it swirl, confused. In them, I read the confirmation of his own hunch that something has been wrong with Nerimes from the start. 
The immersion ancestors wouldn't lie. They're the voice of Ujjay. You know this, brother. Surely you can feel them. They watch us even now. The thoughts swirl another moment in his mind, then coalesce in a decision, though I see the pain it causes him. I will need to meditate on this. Please excuse me, sister. Wait, I call, reaching out a hand, though I don't know if he can see me down this far. What news of Saray before you go? What has the usurper told our foreign agents about me, and what were his orders? He pauses, but instead of the answer coming in his thoughts, or at least in the flitting schools of notion and memory I read in his unblinded mind, there's only blankness. My stomach clenches. I know that blankness. I read it before, in a man named Arayim, and in another overseer who tried to kill me. It is the blankness of a blood push, which means a therakint is in control of his body now. Miara, most likely. So much for winning without a fight. The shadow above me kicks downward. I swim toward a low forest of kelp on the far side of the ship's hull. I try not to think about my last battle against a blood-pushed overseer. I lost it. He swims after, frighteningly fast, blade clenched in his teeth. I push into the waving stands of kelp, keeping low, hoping to lose him, but a hand closes on my ankle. The complete absence of consciousness I read through it is awful. I kick out with my other foot on instinct and feel something snap under my heel, the sound amplified through the water. His nose. Good. The hand jerks open and I wriggle away deeper into the kelp bed. If this were the black water, goatfish would already be on him, drawn by the scent of blood, but I don't know what predators swim these waters, and I can't rely on them. He catches me again, grips solid as a vice on my calf, and my kick bounces off a muscled shoulder. A second hand grabs that thigh, pulling me in, then the first one lets go to grab his knife. I buck like a caged otter, but the angle is too awkward to do more than strike glancing blows, so I curl in and grab for the knife. The shifting sunlight shows nothing to grab but the blade flashing down toward me. I twist out of the way instead, searching desperately for a solution, a lesser used stance or something my water ancestors could do, but nothing comes to me. He stabs again, and this time I manage to at least catch his wrist in my two hands, then twist it into a version of coral bind. It's awkward, but his arm still comes close enough to breaking that he drops the knife. It slips down into the murk of the kelp bed, and I relax a little. No getting that back, and killing me will be a lot harder down here without that. Aside from the risk of drowning, it's actually hard to throw a punch or get leverage underwater. He seizes my neck in Kraken's embrace, and though my blood pounds, I do not feel the usual panic of constricted airflow. I guess the immersion is still handling my need to breathe. I grin, despite the overseer trying to choke the life out of me. He does not have the same advantage as a bloodborne, which means all I have to do is stay down here long enough and he'll have to go up for air. Then I escape. I try Feather shifts the river's course, but his hold is like iron. Still, his lungs hitch where his body is pressed against mine. How long have we been under already? A minute? Two minutes? He must realize the danger, or whoever is controlling him, because his arms loosen suddenly. Only instead of kicking for the surface, he tries gut the fish, a paralyzing move forbidden in the temple, to be used only in desperation. Only the resistance of the water saves me from a broken spine. I use the momentum to kick away, neck screaming, Sure, he'll give up now. 
He follows, body arrowing through the water despite his purpling face, and seizes my leg in two hands. I know the move, thunder's echo, the second stance in the first year form, simple, but all the more effective for it. I have to stop and spin to keep his twist from shattering my leg. He pulls me closer as I do, wide eyes shot with red in the water's hazy light. His chest bucks now, his arms jerking even as he tries a second thunder's echo, this one guaranteed to dislocate my hip. Then his mouth jerks open, sucking in water, and his movements go erratic as the life leaves his eyes. I stare, fear for my own safety fading at the horror of what Miara just did. She killed him on the off chance he could take me out down here, instead of sending him up for a gulp of air. She's an awful woman. My own lungs start to burn, but I don't want to leave him down here. He could have been an ally if the Therakins hadn't taken his blood. I pull him behind me, a dead weight as I kick for the surface. On the way, I remember what my father had started to say before we heard the overseer. Push my mind out into the water, though my burning lungs surely mean the vision is over. I don't know if I can bring it back. Father, I call, or Urte, anyone, Ujay. You were going to say something about a woman and a copy of your notes on the Immersion Chronicles. I need to know what that was. Anything you can tell me, please. Silence as the shimmering surface approaches. Then just the echo of a thought in my father's voice. Hiana, Hiana Kogdan, an ally. You will find her in Duran. She has my chronicles. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. And as promised, a little talk on daddy issues. So if you've read book one, you know that Alethea has this big conflict with her dad. Her dad ignored her while he was still alive. He put her in training as a sort of proxy orphanage because he didn't want to deal with her after her mother died. And we find out that he really believed in her, but she's got all this anger towards him because he basically just kicked her out on her own and she was in this difficult position of being a girl in a monastery full of men, clearly, who thought that she was a heresy because she had their type of magic, despite being female. So at the end of that book, spoilers, they do reconcile. They have a little moment of reconciliation anyway. And so as I was writing book two, I loved that conflict, and I love all the angst that's in there. You know, maybe <laughs> my own daddy issues were coming into it. I don't know. But I wrote Witch of Wealth and Ruin just continuing on that anger every time she'd interact with her dad. And at the end of it, I was like, wait, but they reconciled in the end of book one. They, She should be beyond this. Or if she has it, it's going to be lingering feelings. Um, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't me who recognized this. It was my editor saying, hey, didn't she figure this out? So I had to go back and shift all of those daddy issues because I think conflict with your parents is such a powerful thing to put in a book. It's something that we probably all go through because these are our models for how to be humans in the world. And then as we grow up, we're like, hmm, they were imperfect models, weren't they? So uh, I went back and I thought, what could be the case with her now that She's over the anger. And so you see a little taste of it in this preview chapter, but the case with her now is grief. And this is a little bit of, a, um, I guess, an exclusive reveal, <laughs> uh, is that she's, she's grieving partially because though she can talk to him in the water, every time she goes, he's a little bit more distant. And I had been thinking of this as just something that happens over time as people sort of 
fade into the background consciousness that is the immersion mind or whatever you call it, the thing that she talks to in the ocean. But my writer's workshop pointed out to me that it would be much cooler if instead, every time she talked to them, it's like she erodes a little bit of their personality and they, be, they fade more into that background because she's talking to them. So there's this cost to communicating with her dad. Every time she does it, in a way she's driving him further away by the act of trying to get close to him. So I think that's something I'm going to explore in book three because I think it's awesome. <laughs> and that grief... She does not get over, well, okay, I'm not going to spoil book two for you. <clears throat> I may already have. That is a minor spoiler, but she still has daddy issues. The daddy issues have just shifted, and I liked writing them. So look out, world and readers. There may be more daddy issues coming your way. So with that, my friends, I'm hoping to put some more of these chapters up and have a little bit of talk afterwards about kind of behind-the-scenes stuff I've never talked about before. I hope this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. Till next time, read on, my friends. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, please visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening and read on.